And now, Dan Happel's Connecting the Dots. If tomorrow all the things were gone, I'd work for all my life. And I had to start again with just my children and my wife. I thank my lucky stars to be living here today. Where the flag still stands for freedom and they can't take that away. The men who died, who gave that right to me, and I gladly stand up next to you and defend her still today. Cause there ain't no doubt I love this land. God bless the USA. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. I have the privilege of uh, trying to fit into Dan Happel's cowboy boots yet again tonight, which, as I always say, is impossible. But I just thank you for the privilege of being able to stand in for Dan tonight. We have a very, very important show. I'm talking of the privilege of talking from the UK uh, to you all. So here we are. It's been, um, just reflecting, it's been a momentous week in geopolitical politics to say the least we uh, witnessed the appalling barbaric acts that happened in israel uh, eight days ago last saturday week at 6 a.m in the morning and i think very sadly the death toll is at 13 1300 and potentially climbing we've also witnessed and i have to make this comment we've also witnessed um Marches here in the UK, pro-Palestinian marches. We've witnessed those in Australia, in Canada. And bearing in mind, I never thought that I would even hear this, but the fact that as someone in 1986, I had the uh, incredible privilege, but it was a very emotional, draining experience to stand in a gas chamber in Auschwitz in 1986 in, uh, in Poland and where certain facts of history really hit you head on, which you cannot deny at all, as much as people want to deny that. So then when we go to Australia and we witness a protest and we hear people with the uh, pro-Hamas tropes, etc., then turning around and going, gas the Jews, gas the Jews. This is what's going on right now. But as we know, we are in the biggest spiritual battle of our of our lives. We know what Ephesians 6 says, that we're not fighting flesh and blood, but principalities and powers. And at this time, as I always say, and hence my pillow behind me, my one of my new additions indicates there's the Union Jack on one side, the American flag on the other, old glory on the other. So we need to reach out to each other and we need to constantly encourage each other. And as I say, I always ask my American friends to look beyond their borders 
I'm very mindful of what's happening in Texas at the moment and the planned invasion that's going on. So at no other time in all our nations, we need prayer. One of the privileges that I had, and I've recently been, I was recently in America for 12 weeks, touring around, attending conferences, seeing old friends and making new ones. And one of the incredible, exciting things I find in my life is that when you make the effort, and yes, I went on a plane, and I went on a plane a number of times flying internally in America, and praise God for that, that was safe. And I will not deny that in all the other recent pandemic of stupidity that's gone on, I certainly was play, praying in regard to that. But one of the privileges is about travel, is that you get to meet people. And I, uh, my guest uh, is coming on tonight, which is Juliet Engel, which is Juliet is known to this channel. Juliet did an incredible, incredible presentation at the Red Pill Expo, where I was, which was on my um, on my itinerary, and I had the privilege to be there and meet other friends. So to actually sit down for for lunch, for dinner as we would say, I think it was dinner in the evening, and have a long conversation with someone who then is bringing their perception, their life experience of what they have been through and how they see things at the moment is frankly or awesome. And is one of the, one of the privileges to be able to do that and especially be on this channel. So before I bring on Juliet, I just want to remind you of who she is. I'm going to read some bits out of her bio. And quite rightly, it's very ungentlemanly of me to remind a lady's age to one's audience. <laughs> so I will try and miss that out, as I, as I, as I say. But uh, Juliet is, frankly, as far as I'm concerned, uh, a legend in her own, in her own lifetime, lifetime and very much known to this to this channel so excuse me as i look down and i read my notes but um julia is a radiologist who moved to moscow in 1999 founded the angel coalition to combat human trafficking over the next 10 years the angel coalition grew into an underground railroad that assisted thousands of victims she also co-founded moscow's municipal orphanage staff training center women and Children First, and a nationwide program of community center support for single mothers. The Babushka Brigade, her life was a constant collage of travel and adventures with a cluster of uh, Russian colleagues and friends. She sweated in uh, banyas and jumped into frigid Siberian lakes, traveled by train and bus to small villages on the steppes, ate uh, blinis with honey in uh, Novgorod, and smoked fish on the shores of Lake um, Onika. She sailed the Great Volga River, delivering aid to orphanages and getting to know the kids, watching them grow over the years and trying often in vain to keep them safe. She came back to America in 2010 when her protege was murdered by traffickers and Russian military intelligence warned her that she would be next. She currently is living in the United States of America. Julia, Welcome to the show. What an absolute privilege it is to uh, have you as my guest. And just to say 
that it was a real privilege to meet you. And I'm sorry, um, and in uh, in the summer when we met at the Red Pill, and I'm sorry I hadn't got my emails organised to uh, to follow you up. But I'm very very grateful that uh, you are jo joining me tonight. How are you? Oh, I'm I'm uh, fine, thanks. And I'm 74 and proud ah. of it. <laughs> Amen. 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 Um, Julia, where would you like to start? Because you said to me about the fact that, and we've said it, which is brace ourselves for a paradigm shift geopolitically. Um, we could say that eight days ago, there was a huge event that maybe part of that. So where would you like where would you like to begin? Well, what I like to do is take my life experience, which is somewhat unique. I grew up in an MK Ultra program. I was um <clears throat> for eleven years I was in a, a CIA sex magic program and uh, then escaped and put myself through college and medical school, started a new life, forgot the old life. Um practiced medicine in Seattle for 10 years, had a medical technology company, had a family, uh, and then was invited to go to Russia to help them reform their medical system because I was an expert in maternal infant health as a radiologist and um, an ultrasonographer. And so I then spent twenty the next 20 years of my life focused on uh, that half of the world and was there during the breakup of this former Soviet Union, uh, watched all the, the chaos, lived through it because I was stuck there several times, lived through the counter-revolution of 1993, which uh, was my one experience of, of being under artillery fire, and it's horrifying. I, 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 don't, I can't imagine how soldiers can stand it. I look at the people in Ukraine, and I'm just just breaks my heart. Spent a lot of time in Ukraine, spent a lot of time in those little villages where the fighting's going on. And and there's really, there's so little there, maybe a little general store and some, some uh, houses that people have lived in for generations. It's just, it's tragic what's happening in those farms, that incredible farmland that's being destroyed and contaminated and mined by both sides. And and soaked with lead and depleted uranium. And, and you know, the world needs that that breadbasket, that food that the Ukraine produces. Fortunately, it's actually in Russia they produce more food. So at least that that part of the of that southern Eurasian breadbasket is still functioning. So actually Russia right now is feeding Africa. So um <clears throat> What has happened in order to make it in the preparation, what I what I talked about at the red pill was the lead up into the uh, Russian-Ukrainian war. It's not really a war, it's a limited military operation because Ukraine never legally separated from Russia, which is a, a whole story we can get into if anybody's interested. But um <clears throat> how hard the can I can I just can I sorry to interrupt. No, I mean Please get into that if if you so wish, because it's understanding history, it's understanding these things, and then explaining why why we are where we are, why we are where we are, because they're very very important. Yes, and that leads right to what's going on in Israel. So 
it is worth knowing that um, in 1991, when the former Soviet Union broke apart, each republic, each of the uh, 15 or 17, I never remember this, each republic became an independent country, except for Ukraine. They all filed their articles of, of uh governance and their own constitutions. And there was a whole series of steps they had to go through the United Nations to become recognized as independent countries. And Ukraine didn't want to do it. And the reason Ukraine didn't want to do it is that they had huge debts. And actually, the, the breakup of the former Soviet Union, more than anything, was caused by the uh, lawlessness in all the republics, it was it was a, a mess, but particularly in Ukraine, because Ukraine was borrowing money, uh, engaging in foreign contracts that were illegal, uh, stealing gas. Uh, Ukraine has no gas, <clears throat> has no oil to speak of of its own. But the pipelines from Russia to Europe, upon which Russia depends and Europe depends, have traditionally gone through Ukraine, which is why they blew up Nord Stream too, because they couldn't yeah. let Russia go around Ukraine and get to Europe. So really, it's Europe suffering more than anything. Um, so Ukraine did not file their documents, which meant that Europe, uh, Russia was obliged to pay all of the, the debts. And we're talking tens of billions of dollars. And it basically bankrupted uh, the Russian Federation, which is a federation of uh, 174 different ethnic groups. I mean, it's it's a huge diverse population, which is predominantly Christian, but also they have Muslims. They have there's 17 different recognized religious, but mostly it's Christian, and uh, they were forced to pay before they could become an independent federation. So uh, Ukraine is legally still part of Russia, which is why anybody that knows anything about international law does not call this a war. It's not a war. And the reason that NATO can't just go rolling in there or we can't just go rolling in there is because it's Russia. So um, it's really a civil war within Russia. And what I presented at the Red Pill Expo was detailed uh, documentation, which I got to see from the inside, as to how hard the United States State Department worked to create wokeism in, they tried to do it in Russia and Ukraine. It, it took in Ukraine, but Russia said, nah, we're going family values. But Ukraine went the whole, the whole woke uh, system with uh, transgender and LGBT and, and you know, just, just, I, I showed some slides at the Red Pill Expo of the uh, LGBT parade in Ukraine, which Kiev, just Kiev, was huge with every strange looking thing you could imagine. And in Russia, it's just a couple of policemen tearing everything down because they'd made it illegal. So the, the big divide came. And um, it, this was before 2014. In 2014, uh, and, and they... You know, the State Department supported Ukraine through three elections where the population kept voting for conservative family values, Russian presidents who wanted uh, good relations with Russia, a sound economy, and were not in favor of rushing off and joining NATO and the EU. Three elections, three terms, with two color revolutions in there, all supported by the United States to try and get a 
anti-Russian candidate in. And they finally did in 2014. And that, that was the Maidan. And that, that required activating the Nazi cells. So um, you, you saw legitimate protests uh, in Kiev. I'm sure even in the U.S. they showed those massive protests on the Maidan Square in Kiev, where people were protesting everything from the price of gas to the price of food to, you know, uh, demands for new schools. I mean, it was a, it was a, very exciting kind of festival of people wanted from their government. And and the U.S. couldn't have that. So, and I don't mean all the U.S., I mean a certain faction from the State Department, which is still there. And they had to create chaos. So they brought in the, uh, there's a team of international sniper assassins, and they include Ukrainians, Bulgarians, Albanians. This this team is for hire. And, and if you watch color revolutions around the world, you see them, you start to recognize them. They get flown in. So they were on the rooftops and they were basically ordered to kill a hundred people. And they wanted to make it 50-50 police, military and 50 uh, civilians. So they started shooting both. So the, the shots were coming from the rooftops, just randomly killing people, but nobody knew what was happening. And it worked, it created complete chaos. And then this team of, of assassins, which included the Banderites. And the Banderites are the Ukrainian Nazis who were just applauded in Canada, in Parliament in Canada. This absolutely vile, murderous crew of, of, of Jew-hating, human-hating extremists who were turned loose on Ukraine uh, during World War II, and they're the ones that gathered people into churches and then burned the whole churches and shot 30,000 Jews at Baba Yar. I mean, they were just, just uh, appalling, but they're still there. So they were brought in to terrorize the Russian population of Ukraine. And Ukraine is about one-third ethnic Russians and the rest a mix of all kinds of people, including Hazarian Jews, who are the Ashkenazi Jews. And that's where we're going to get to how this connects to Israel. Right. So um, they started. Was the, was the then sorry? Was the then uh, president of um, of the Ukraine then in two thousand and fourteen, Prushenko? Is he not native native born Russian? <laughs> He's a typical Soros plant. I knew him when his name was Alan Waltzman. So he oh. was he he's sort of American Ukrainian Jew. Right. And and the person that they elected was Yakushenko. Yeah, that's it. That's it. Yeah. The Russian who yeah. was who favored good relationships with Russians, trading with Russians, mm. uh Ukrainian independence from the EU. So mm. all all the things that, you know, the State Department, that faction, the Victoria Newland yes. faction didn't want. So um and then in 2014, this was in 2010 that they brought in, uh, <laughs> I can never remember. There were two victors, and they have almost exactly the same last name, Yushchenko, I guess. And mm. and uh, so they, they put him in. Then, 14, then six years later, they had another election. They voted in the Russian for president again, the population, and that wouldn't do. So they had another color revolution, and that's when they put in Poroshenko who is uh, actually speaks perfect English because he spent a very large amount of his life in, in New York. 
uh, sort of like Netanyahu, who couldn't speak perfect English because he grew up in Boston. So, um, so in 2014, that's when they um, they got a they got Poroshenko in place, right? And they decided that uh, the way to handle the fact that the Ukraine kept going, favoring Russia was to eliminate the Russians. And there was a massive call. It's it's just, it reminds me so much of what's happening with Gaza right now. Uh, after these, these um, snipers had killed a bunch of Ukraine, innocent Ukrainians, just slaughtered them. And, and also they did the same thing, the Banderites during, during the second world war down in Odessa, they would, lock people in buildings and set the buildings on fire. 40, 50 people would burn to death. I don't even know if you knew about this in the U.S. or, or Great Britain, but um, they were doing that. And uh, it created just a, a, a hatred, you know, sort of like you're seeing for the Israelis, for the Palestinians. But it's really Hamas. It's not the whole Palestinian people. So they they started on a program of Russian genocide. And uh, this they started in Donetsk. So Ukraine is divided into East and West. East has always been Russian. I mean, since the beginning of time, it speaks Russian, Russian people, Russian traditions um, should have been Russia. But Khrushchev sort of, at a, they said at a drunken party, he just drew a line through there and said, this will be Ukraine and this will be Russia. And, and it didn't matter then because it was all Soviet Union. But when the Soviet Union broke up, then it did matter because you had almost 20 million Russians stuck in a country that hated them. And uh, and they hated, I mean, it's just, well, every Russian has Ukrainian in them and every Ukrainian has Russian in them. And there was peace, peace between these people. They're all pretty much uh, Orthodox Christians or, or Jews. So, um, you know, it, it had to be artificially revved up, and the people in our State Department did that. Now, these are people with family connections to Ukraine, so they were like personally had a stake in this and something to gain. These people also have a personal stake in Israel, but we'll get to that. So um, Western Ukraine began the bombardment of Eastern Ukraine, and for eight years, from 2014 to 2022, there were daily bombardments of Donetsk, Luhansk, and other parts of the eastern Ukraine, Kherson, Zaporozhye, uh, constant bombardments of civilians because there weren't any military installations or facilities. They wanted the Russians to either pick up and leave and go to Russia or die. And during that time, uh, over 15,000 Russians were killed. These were mostly kids, people in schools. They blew up markets. They blew up churches. It was a reign of terror for eight years on the people of that region. And they were begging for Russia to come in and help and, and save them and help them. And I'm sure they did. And I think, and personally, I know that people were... Russians were going over the borders to help out and to volunteer and to form mercenary groups. Hence, you got the Wagners, and the, there were many other groups. There, the Mozarts. There's, there's uh, uh, the Chechens were, were jumping in there, um, but officially, Russia was not involved. So, uh, 
It's interesting. I, I heard a lecture recently on how it takes eight years to build an organized army. And I can tell you that in 2014, Russia didn't have, it, it, it had been demilitarizing. So it had been disbanding bases, decommissioning weapons. It wasn't geared up to build. Uh, it, the factories weren't set up to set to produce ammunition or guns or shells or, or, um, anything military and the and the Russians weren't trained and the population was all over the place. Sort of like if you took our country now and you said, okay, we're going to go um, fight a war in Canada. I mean, how many people are going to sign up for that? So um, that's how it was. And it, it, it took uh, eight years of this bombardment of these people who were basically being sacrificed in Eastern Ukraine, these Russian people to coalesce the country, to, to get it together and to, uh, it was a fat, it's a fascinating thing to watch and it was completely discounted in the West. But what the overall result was, was a complete unification of Russia behind the Orthodox Christian president, who is Vladimir Putin. And Vladimir Putin was the first Orthodox Christian president the only one. He was the only one since since uh, Lenin, well, Kerensky was the first president, but since 1919, he was the first Christian president of Russia. He was also the first president who used his own name. So um, almost 100% of the presidents of the Russian Federation within the former Soviet Union were all Hazarian Jewish uh, people using, changing their names to like Boris Yeltsin. Boris Yeltsin's real name was, was uh, uh, Baruch Elias. Sort of wonder if he's related to Mark Elias, <laughs> could be, but I don't know, but uh, Ukrainian Jew. So, so that was the political situation. And so the Russians, eventually united against the ortho, uh, behind the Orthodox Christian uh, President Putin. And in the, in the process, the Russian army has built this huge cathedral in the middle of Moscow. It's called the Cathedral of the Army. And uh, it's built out of the steel that was captured from World War II. So it's, they, they melted down German tanks, German weapons, Everything they captured, they eventually brought brought to a place called Paklonaya Gara, which is this this hill, and um, they built a cathedral, which you can see from many many places in, in Moscow. It's huge, and they built it for the army, so the troops go through there before they go off to Ukraine or any kind of deployment, and they're blessed and they are. Um, uh, because ninety percent of them are Christian. That's not mm. that's not true of all of them. Because you've got the Chechens, you know, you've got that yes. huge army from from Chechnya who are Muslim, and they but they have their own. They have a mosque to their own army in uh, um, their capital. <laughs> Just escaping me, CM seventy four. I forget these things, um, but uh, so I I had never I'd watched. The carpet beggars, which is what you got to call them, As when the Soviet Union broke off, all these Soros people, these Clinton Foundation people, yeah, uh, 
the Global Fund for AIDS, another uh, huge hmm. scam, just handing out money and forcing political agendas and and. Uh, I mean, the and depth of course, of now, is... now, now we have the Clinton Foundation wanting to get in on the act in of regards course. to Ukraine as well. Sorry to interrupt. I was just going to say this. One thing we have to bear in mind is the amount of sacrifice the Russian army people made in the Second World War. I think it was commented on uh, when FDR and Churchill and Stalin met at Yalta that, you know, that understanding of the sacrifice that the Russians had made of fighting fighting the Nazis in their millions. And yes. I don't think we fully appreciate that. And it continued after the war, actually started before the war, because Stalin didn't trust his own army. So he killed 30,000 of his own officers, hmm. which you know left the, the his own army devastated. Um, so, but that that's another story. And then afterwards he killed another Billion, and then Khrushchev started famines by um, uh, again. It's the that Black Earth region of Russia. They uh, started centrally planning agriculture, and it was a, such a disaster that millions of of yeah. Russians and Ukrainians died. But uh, I mean, the history of that of that region is so profound, and it just breaks my heart that we're cut off from it. I mean, now there's there's yes, U.S. Great Britain should be. Thickest thieves. And so should Russia. I mean, and Russia doesn't understand why it isn't. It sees itself as a um, as a Western country, Western family values, Christian nation. Um, it it's being pushed towards China, but Russia and China are are like oil and water. It's just yes. they're yes. not the same at all. And they have never liked each other and uh, they tolerate each other. But um it's it's not going to lead to the kind of of uh, strategic alliances that are are being put into our media. It's just all false. Yeah. So, um, can is is this? Am I making this clear? I mean, it's a huge amount of of material, but um, it's critical. no. You're doing you're doing brilliantly because we're at this point where you've talked you've talked about. The, the the bombing in the Ukraine from the west into the east. We've got the we've got the Donbass, Lugansk. You haven't mentioned that, but the, those regions, the fifteen thousand uh, Russians that have been killed because of this. There's no military installations within uh, eastern uh, Ukraine, and quite rightly, you've mentioned the fact that Ukraine is the European. A breadbasket. Hence, I've I've understood that the reason why the flag is blue and and yellow or bordering on gold is that it represents the harvest, represents the wheat fields, and that it's flat and that it seems to go on for a long, long time. A bit like if you go up to Montana and it seems that the sky is meeting the land. So it's just how I've, it looks. I've too. understood that that it's that. Yes. Yeah, a little so, interesting aside is that uh, you've seen that that so-called trident that that Zelensky wears on all his clothes, yeah, and it's on the Ukrainian yeah. flag, and many yeah. of the Ukrainian units had. They call it the the tridlub, the the trident. That's not a trident. Uh, that's a very ancient symbol, and uh, it's actually a bird. And the right. bird was it was designed in the eighth century 
when uh, Ukraine was Christianized, when all of Russia was Christianized. It started in Kiev with the Rurikid dynasty of Russia, and their symbol was uh, Christ descending to earth as, as a dove. And that's what that is. If you look at it, you look at the older versions, it's a dove descending from heaven to earth. Right. But they've turned wow. it into some kind of demonic symbol mm. yes. of war. Yeah. It's not what it is at all. I think before we move on, the other thing I'd like to ask you about, just say that people have not understood, and you've just laid it out, people have not understood why Putin has not just said to the military, just go in, go into Kiev, get get the Kiev, get all this over and done with. And you've said it, it's because Russian territory, because of this history, and also I think because the way that they fight, he they fight wars, which is very different in one way to us, where this whole thing of, you know, shock and awe, let's go in and bomb every everything and destroy all the civilian uh, um, civilian infrastructure. It's the last thing he wants to, to do. Um, I think it's what's called, I'm not being clever, I have researched this bit, Clausewitz, where he wants to actually engage the army, engage the military. And that's why it's so sad when people have been referring to it as they need more troops, the Ukrainians, to put into the meat grinder, because the meat grinder is saying that the Russians are meeting them at that point. But the last thing he wants to do is to destroy the place. He, I get the impression doesn't want, of course, you've said it, he's writing then what's Russian land, because of course we're for viewers to understand that Kiev, I understand at one point, was the capital of Russia. The, there is this, of course, architecturally, historically, these links. So it's just explaining, sorry, I'm maybe doing it very badly, just trying to explain this historical roots to people and why it's so important that we get our maps out and work out where all, where all these places are. Because bless you, you've been one of those rare people in the fact that you have actually gone over there and lived there and immersed yourself in the country for a long, long time. And then to get your head around it and understand it. Because certain policies of wokeism, you know, under the Obama administration, they've been trying that all over the world, a bit like saying to Africa, uh, we want you to go down this line, otherwise we're, then we'll give you aid, otherwise we'll stop. So, sorry, recapping. So, you we've talked about 2014, that that color revolution of Soros. What do you, what are your thoughts, just quickly, on the whole Minsk agreement leading up to that and the European lies? Well, in one of the reasons that Russia didn't invade in 2014, or were were they were supply they were supplying huge amounts of humanitarian aid and i'm sure military assistance to the mil militias in donetsk luhansk and uh all of the eastern uh russian what was the question i lost myself i'm just saying what do you <laughs> about do, do not worry because <laughs> in the context in the context of what nato has been up to we all always oh, go on, on about that we look at how they then put they were going to put Georgia on a particular list preferential to then join NATO and understandably the Russians said no I'm not having that and then there's a five or six day war then with Georgia and then they back down and say no you're not doing that the fact that then is preferential in regard to putting Ukraine on that list as well to join NATO and 
people have gone on about, look, what's happened. Well, if you keep provoking the bear, it's a bit like going back to the Cuban Missile Crisis, you know, having missiles in Cuba going to America. So I just wondered what your thoughts on the Minsk Agreement, where the Europeans, he's signing that, but of course they then go back on their word. Yes, uh, the Russians put uh, all their trust into negotiations, and the reason that that uh, Putin refrained from from letting any uh, official military operation start in the in the Ukrainian for the special military operation in the east uh, was that that he was convinced that uh, once all he had to do was show them that the Russians were serious. So they did a very limited operation. They went in, they they uh, invaded the medical laboratories, found the situation much, much worse than they ever expected. So they went ahead and they went into Chernobyl and they took the, the nuclear uh, materials that could have been used to make nuclear weapons. They took that. They also took that from Kharkiv Institute, where actually the Ukrainians were manufacturing suitcase bombs, nukes. Um, so they focused on on sort of disarming the worst, taking away the worst of it. And then the process discovered there were many, many more biological labs than they expected. There was a much larger amount of biowarfare being developed there, uh, children's children trafficking, organ trafficking, baby farms. They discovered all this, and it's all on their website. Yeah, uh, the Ministry of Defense is putting it all on their website, gradually translating it into understandable English. So Putin was convinced when he took all this to the Minsk, to the to the negotiations in Minsk in Belarus, that. Um, the West would see the light and say, oh, gosh, we got to clean this up. This is a mess. We, we can't be part of this. They they went home, they signed it, and they thought that was it. And uh, Zelensky had agreed that, that uh, you know, that Russia basically said we'll have referendums in two of the breakaway republics, we'll, we'll pull out of the rest. And Zelensky agreed. And if they had just kept that and kept NATO out of Ukraine and just yeah. gone home, cleaned up the bio labs, done everything they'd agreed to do, there wouldn't be half a million Ukrainians dead right now. So but that's the region of the Lugansk and the Donbass who voted to then be with Russia. Well, Crimea did it in 2014, but they were right. set up. They were poised. Yeah. <laughs> they were better organized. Yeah. Donetsk, Luhansk did it a few months later but the Ukrainians had already attacked them and it had gotten messy. And and uh, and then this would be in, in May of 2014 that that they're, they were just massively attacked by Ukraine and they, they couldn't proceed with their own referendums. And then in 2015, uh, the Russians had a limited invasion and uh, there was the Minsk Accords, the meetings in Minsk, Russia thought, okay, we've ironed this all out. Everything's good. Went home. They seemed like the Ukrainians were pretty happy. Then Boris Johnson flies to Kiev, and whatever he said to Zelensky and his his Nazi cohorts there um, convinced them to continue the war. I think he made big promises uh, that uh, I don't think the UK could ever keep, and. Uh, you know, it's not known what he said or what he did. But after Boris Johnson's visit, 
than the Ukrainians up the war, up the ante, started getting huge shipments uh, uh, from NATO. So that must have been an agreement. Absolutely. And I'm I'm appalled by that. I'm appalled to find then then that the then Prime Minister Boris Johnson flies off and says no, especially in my own please see I want to know what you think. My own understanding is that within weeks of of uh, the Russians going into the Ukraine, within four weeks, there was a piece of paper on the on the table to negotiate to ceasefire and to sort all this out. But again, that may be what you're referring to because yes. I know Johnson was over there. I think February this year. That is then no, no, no back, back to, then. That's back right after then. the Minsk, right after the yeah. Minsk Accords. He may have right. been there several other times, but right. um, he, I, he he scuppered it. So uh, he representing whoever was behind him and and the promises of NATO. I think NATO wanted to fight to the last Ukrainian defeat Russia. I mean, they want their lands, they want their minerals, they want their oil. They have a, a, a totally wrong assessment of Russia. I ran into this all the time. I was going to the U.S. Embassy all the time because I was working on human trafficking and human rights issues. I was, as an American, I was all over Russia and the former Soviet republics and but I wasn't going in an official capacity I was just with with people so um that but I would report back to the embassy and I would say no no you're wrong you know uh, people aren't going along with this maybe maybe the people you're bribing in the in the parliament are but you know russian people are are not going along with this and and uh I'd say I was right. Um, so, how was that received? How how was that how was that oh, received when you actually uh, pushed back and said, "Well, I'm sorry, I disagree with your assessment." I'm still doing it. <laughs> yes, yes, you are, you are. But I, I know you are. But uh, bless you. But I mean, I've met I've met with people. I I had several meetings with William Burns, and I've said this, and and so it's it's it, I, I'm a well known pain in the pain in the fanny. But, um, and at that time, maybe it didn't matter so much, but it does now because they're completely wrong. And the result is of being wrong is causing this, this has caused this disaster. As far as I'm concerned, our state department has blood, Ukrainian blood. They're soaked in it. I mean, 500,000 soldiers, NATO built up the largest standing army in Europe, in Ukraine. They had an enormously well-trained, NATO-trained um, army. They did all the planning. Their plans were terrible. I mean, it didn't account for weather or the uh, quality of the dirt in Ukraine. I mean, if you've ever, if any of them had ever walked across a field in Ukraine, they would know that rolling tanks across fields in Ukraine, they're just going to sink four feet. You know, it's yes. yep. it's like, it's, it's so rudimentary, but it's like, you wouldn't see that from, from outer space. You'd have to be on the ground, getting your feet dirty. And nobody did that. Um, or, or really judged the Russian character. Because the Russians, they were always telling me the Russians are chess players, Americans play checkers. 
you know, it's black and white, there's a good guy, a bad guy. We're doing this in, in Israel right now. There's a good guy, there's a bad guy. You know, Russians are thinking, at least in Russia, uh, are thinking 16 steps ahead. So Putin's saying, okay, we know we're going to defeat Ukraine. What are we going to do with what's left? You know, we don't want the Western Ukraine. I think what they're going to do is they're going to go to the Dnieper River, they're going to set up massive fortifications, and they're going to stop. And they may or may not take Odessa, depending on what the Ukrainians do. Ukrainians need Odessa because that's that's their only port. They need that. If they're going to export grain or, or import commodities, they need that. But Odessa is a Russian city. It's full of Russians, and and uh, so that's that's up in the air. I suppose Odessa will be negotiable, but have to have very good terms. But I think they'll they'll reach a point and they'll stop because they don't want to rule this whole glop of of mm. wokists in Western Russia that hate them and will continue. I mean, they're they're not going to stop. I mean, the 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 people that are throwing bombs against the czars, the Bolsheviks. Those were all Hazarian Ukrainians. So that's the same people. <laughs> they, if they could put up a wall, which they might, and just wall them all off, they'll, they'll do the equivalent that, of that if they can. That's a piece of history I'd love us to try and come back to in regard to the Bolsheviks and that, that Ukrainian link and on what well, was going on. I mean, I'll just, sorry, go on, go ahead. Go ahead. I was going to say it, it rolls over into right now. Yes, because I was trying to get the figures on how many Ukrainian Jews have left Ukraine during this conflict and moved to Israel, and it's somewhere over a hundred and twenty thousand. And for a country the size of Israel, that's a huge amount of people, and probably yes. and, and probably it's much more than that because it's not counting people who go over as family members or. So I I was trying to get a solid number. But um, these are people. To put it in a geographical, to put it in a geographical context, I think Israel was the size of New Jersey, <laughs> or over here it would be the size of Wales. So we're putting, and to give you an idea, our viewers an idea is like the UK fits into Texas nearly three times, and <laughs> and North Dakota is half the size of the UK with seven hundred thousand people. But we have 68 million people over here. So it's just giving that geographical context for little Israel, size of size of uh, New, Z New Jersey. Before, sorry, I do apologize about the interruption. I just want to address this. When Rubio asked Victoria Newland about, does Ukraine have nuclear weapons? And she went, no, but it does have biolabs. That, I think, is when, because Lara Logan had talked about this, that's when suddenly everyone went, conspiracy theory went from 40 years down to five minutes. <laughs> what, were your, what was your reaction to Rubio, to that Rubio exchange, other than it might have been a setup? I don't know. What, what are your thoughts? No, I think she got caught off guard. I mean, besides the Russians have been posting it on their website. Yes. They've been listing them. They've yes. been capturing Americans in the labs, so the State Department has to negotiate to get them back. I mean, they're 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 on U.S. government grants. They've got all the documentation. I mean, they went in quickly. They seized one after the other, and they 
they basically emptied almost 50 of them. So you can't deny that they were there and you can't deny who these people are sitting in your office and you can't deny uh, who's funding. So was this, was this gain of function again? Sorry, yes, was this gain of yes. function again? Yes, and it was something that I had come across in the mid-90s because as I traveled around Russia, people would inevitably, in little villages, would ask me why representatives of pharmaceutical companies were coming to their villages and trying to buy their DNA. Wow. And uh, people routinely refused. And then what the companies would do is they'd go dig up the graveyards. So so graves were being desecrated all over. Um, so, hold, hold on a minute. These pharmaceutical companies were stealing were going bodies. around digging up the graveyards without permission or any, well, they shouldn't be doing that anyway, but they didn't ask for permission. They just went and did this like grave robbers? Yes. Yes. Wow. And, and uh, I actually went to one of the graveyards in Karelia, which is northern Russia, and uh, people were just absolutely indignant. They, they'd robbed the graves. They hadn't stolen the whole bodies, but they'd taken pieces. So... Uh, wow. It was it was something that I helped a group organize and do a presentation at the UN about who who could have cared less. I mean, it's it was the beginning of my realization that the the UN isn't there for the the people. When did you when did you make that presentation? When did 19, you make that presentation? Nineteen ninety five. Right. So they were they were then create they wanted the DNA because they wanted to examine the weaknesses of the Slavic people to then create whatever bioweapon they wanted to then get rid of them. Is that a fair assessment? A gen well, a genocide at, weapon? At, uh, yes, but at the time, their explanation was that uh, that uh, the skin of the I went and and they gave me the I got a card from someone who'd been doing this the villagers had had kept information and gave me the information and I went and talked to the drug company um and they said what they were doing was trying to develop cosmetics because these people had amazing skin they had right. they're sami right. people and they had skin that wouldn't burn wouldn't blemish no freckles. I mean, no matter what you did to it, it was beautiful. So they were trying to make cosmetics. Hmm. So I thought, you know, grave robbing was a little extreme, but that was the explanation. And it really wasn't until um, when uh, Russia invaded South Ossetia, you referred yes. to the uh, Georgia situation in Georgia, they uncovered biolabs there. And and this one of them actually is named after a uh, American Senator Luger. Uh, the U.S. had funded bio um, weapons development labs in Georgia. So the Russians uh, took a lot of information and material from there, and that's how they got suspicious about the situation in northern Ukraine. But now that they have uh, basically destroyed 50 of the labs and taken all the information, and I don't know where the scientists are, um, and are posting it on their website, which we will get slowly. They're dripping it out through the through the UN and the uh, Russian Ministry of Defense website and the Ministry of Health website as well. But as they translate it, it's in this heavy, incomprehensible 
Russian translations, which I just hate. It'll take a while before we can really understand the implications of it, but they're huge. So Victoria Newland, who's fluent in Russian, um, has read all this material. So she really couldn't deny it. And uh, in terms of the nukes, they had the nukes until Russia went in there and emptied them out of Chernobyl and Kharkiv, which they did. And they basically imploded Kharkiv. All that's left is a, or the Kharkiv Institute, all that's left is this huge crater where the Institute used to be. We, we remember Victoria Newland's infamous phone call in 2014 to the, about, you know, swearing F, F the Euro, <laughs> the European, F the EU in regard to the fact that the person that she, she wanted in, I mean, I'm sorry, but I just, well, I don't apologize for this. I just find people like her, these neocons, complete psychopaths. You know, what, oh, they, what are they? They are. They are. That's the only conclusion I can come to because how many labs were in the Ukraine? Was it, is there a figure of 48 or something? Or am I exaggerating? Something like that. No, the, it's about 50. She said it was about 50. And, wow. and uh, from what I can tell from the Russians, uh, what they have downloaded, they vary it in degrees, but about 50 that were spread uh, quite widely. But a lot of them were associated with uh, organ harvesting from baby farms. I mean, absolutely despicable, horrible stuff, which the Russians have shut down where they have taken over. Um, so, but that... But now we've got the situation. Another thing that you don't hear, I don't know if you've ever heard of this, but it's something you hear about in, U in Ukraine from the uh, Jewish people that are are uh, are now moving in mass to Israel, moving out of yes. Ukraine and going to Israel, is the concept of greater Israel. Because yes. if you took the territory of Israel and you combined it with the wealth and the territory and the food and the riches of of not just you'd have to have all of Ukraine because the riches are in the east where the Russians are, it, so it doesn't work if you just get the west. But their idea was to get all of it, the the entire section of Ukraine, and then you have to move the Palestinians, convince them to leave Gaza because Ukraine doesn't have oil. Israel doesn't have oil. However, one of the largest natural gas fields in the world, with they haven't even been able to estimate how much is down there, is off the coast of Gaza. And it's sitting there. And by international law, it belongs to the Palestinians. And if the Palestinians leave, the Israelis get it. As it is, there's like one drilling platform out there and there's a, an agreement that's that that is how the palestinians are getting their their gas by allowing the israelis to pump gas out of this field but it's a huge field i mean it's estimated maybe as much gas and oil as saudi arabia who knows i mean this this is just hearsay i don't have any statistics i don't think anybody does till they can actually explore it um but there it is it's the gazan gas field. So if you had the Gazan gas field, the territory of Israel, the territory of all of Ukraine, including eastern Ukraine, with all of its minerals and and wealth, and and uh, you would own a huge swatch of the world's food supply, and there would be greater Israel. So Israel would go from being 
the size of New Jersey with very limited resources and surrounded by um, enemies and relying on other countries for its gas and, and a large part of its food to being a, a huge force to be reckoned with, with completely self-sufficient and a supplier of, of uh, in fact, it could cut off food to Africa which uh, it's threatened to do. So there's greater Israel. Okay, so right now you've got hundreds of thousands of Ukrainians moving into Israel. Israel is not, again, there's no black and white here. Israel has multiple factions and they all are fighting each other for the resources, they hate each other. And the, uh, like the Mizrahi Jews, the Jews that, that have, are Semitic and have always been part of Israel who really have a birthright to be there are saying the Ukrainian Jews have no um, Semitic DNA. They're Turks. These are the people that were converted to Judaism in the 10th century and have no right to be in Israel. So they're fighting with each other, but they're getting overwhelmed just by the sheer numbers of these people coming in. And it's the Ukrainian Jews that are being shipped out to the Golan Heights to fill the settlements and drive the Palestinians out because they're sort of, uh, they're expendable. So you've got all that going on, you know? And and uh, so so what's going on with with this, this Hamas attack and all of this? I don't know. I, but I'm looking at the bigger picture, which is you've got people like Victoria Newland who want to see, and people above her who want to see greater Israel. So Israel and Ukraine joined together, probably with everything that you'd you'd probably have to stick Syria and 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 uh, Lebanon and all those other countries would become irrelevant. You'd have to stick them in there. So, but that is a plan, you know. Well, let's let's unpack this a bit. Because I'll put on, as a Bible-believing Christian, then I have to come back to prophetically where it's saying, okay, to Abraham, this is all, this is all your land. Now, we then, see, um, we then see the fact that Israel as a nation then comes about miraculously in a day in 1948. There it is. I know the the fact that as the British, we've got the Balfour Agreement. We suddenly create uh, Jordan for argument's sake. We're dividing up, dividing up land and all this kind of thing. And understandably, historically, after all the all the abuse, all the genocide, the Russian pogroms, and all the rest, we go through the Second World War, and then it's like. Actually, no. We need we need our own we need our own nation. We know the miracle of that in 1948, and the fact that when we look at the map, there are all these other Islamic countries around who have got thousands and thousands and thousands of miles of acreage, and then there's little Israel that they want to wipe off the map. I can't apologize that where I'm coming from, coming from on that. And we look at 1948, 1956, uh, 1967 and 73, which unfortunately, you know, the 50th anniversary of that particular war last week, if I've got my dates right. And Hamas come in and, and do what do what they're doing, which is 
their mandate is to say we want complete genocide. Now, I have to say, I've never heard of the Ukraine being included in a greater Israel. I never realized that this was part of the Newland's psychopathy or, you know, I I never realized that. Um, Can you... I've forgotten who Newland's actually married to. Sorry, go, go. Yeah, yeah she, she's married to Robert Kagan, who's sort of the the founder of the New America Project for a New American Century. Right. Yes. So um the neocon of neocons. Yes. And, and page uh, 55 turning around and going, America needs a new Pearl Harbor 9-11. Did I say that yes. out loud? Yes, I yes. did. Yes, so I did. Is this Hamas attack like Israel's 9-11? I don't know. I don't pretend to know. I just know that I, I've been close enough to some of it that I I have walked across the dirt fields in Ukraine and gotten mud in my my Wellington boots because the the dirt is so deep and and uh I've been in Israel I've worked with them enough mm. um because uh, human trafficking is is uh, that's one of the of course the main routes that the Torg bring people uh through the desert and and into Israel and we worked with wonderful groups in Israel. So I, I'm not saying anything negative against Israel. I'm just saying mm. that it, that they're not, these aren't checkers, you know. This is a whole chessboard. And and within the Israeli politics are are the seeds of the of this of a huge amount of discord, which is getting stirred up right now. I mean, you're getting uh Israeli fighters. Uh, like I think 300,000, the reason they don't have the full army massed on the border is people are refusing to come because they won't fight under Netanyahu um, because they think the Likud party are, are psychopaths. If you heard that interview that that Natan or Naftali Bennett just gave, my goodness, people were talking about him as the hope of being the mediator of peace, but he just gave the most psychotic interview I've ever heard. And, and, um, uh no <laughs> so so how do you how do you take it from here and start to to put these pieces together and people like me uh, as an american i i can suggest you know i have my own little suggestions but understanding the the complexity and the passions and in 1948 you know with the balfour agreement when they started the the yeah. Israel and they started shipping the Eastern European Jews, the Ashkenazi. They shifted. They just sent everybody, and within that group, there was already conflicts because the Ashkenazi, it, the Sephardic Jews and the Mizrahi Jews were saying that Ashkenazi Jews were not Semitic and had no birthright in Israel. But there wasn't DNA, so you couldn't prove it one way or another. But um, in actual fact, now that there's DNA, you know, just read the reports that are published all the time in Israel saying these Jews have no right to be here. They're not really, they're not Semitic. So what do they power. do in that situation? What do well, they, they just do shipped everybody. Situation? It was political. In 1948, they just wanted to get the, they get rid of that refugee problem, right? And put a buffer between, uh, a, a buffer uh, close to the Suez Canal and, a, and a, an irritant between in the middle of the the uh, Muslim countries, and they did that. The British did that, but at that time there was also uh, very few Orthodox Jews. I mean, the, the, the true Jews. Israel was pretty empty. 
So um, when they started shipping the European Jews, it was not a huge population pressure. Like it became, it became much later. Um, so you, you, uh, and now that you're, you're shipping in wholesale, you're shipping hundreds of tens of thousands, of, probably hundreds of thousands of Ukrainian Jews who it's Mahi Jews, the, the the local Jews and the Palestinians, they have no right to be there because they're not they're claiming a, a birthright that they don't have because um, they're Turks. They're not uh, they're Turkey. They're a Turkey tribe that converted to Judaism. Now, you, some Ukrainian Jews are Edomites. They're the red haired, blue eyed Jews. Right. So uh, right. there were 50,000 Edomites when 500,000 Hazarians converted to Judaism in the 10th century and became the Hazarian Jews, who are in other countries called the Ashkenazi Jews. So within the Jews, you've got this, this conflict. And, and if, the, if, the, if the qualification for automatic citizenship and, and land ownership and a business and and a voting right in Israel is that you're a descendant of uh, Abraham. Well, nope. <laughs> so what do you do? <laughs> I don't well, know. I think what we do is be able to have a a dis- a good a good calm discussion about it. Ooh, because that's what's really important. Because you're raising these issues. That a number of people, a lot of people don't know about or they haven't thought through that how politically do they do that, especially as people reckon there may be only 15 million Jews in the world anyway, right? Yeah, it's something like that. Uh, they can, they spread can all trace, over the world. And the, and the Palestinians can trace their DNA back to, to actually, it's, it's, you have to trace it back to Jacob. So, um, they can do that. European Christians can, largely. Um, there's several African groups who can, but who are treated very badly. You know, they're called the in Israel, even though they are actually have birthrights in Israel if you go by the Balfour Agreement. Hmm. I don't know how you sort this out, and I don't have a lot of faith that the people that I see in the embassies or the State Department have the brains, the motivation, or the foresight to even begin to understand the situation. Well, especially if they're then giving $6 billion to Iran, and then they wonder, oh, I'm sure this will go really well. I mean, they're then denying that whether they've actually digitally transferred <laughs> a lot of that, that money. And then there's suddenly... I think uh, a week before the tragedy happened last weekend, there's Sullivan saying, well, you know, the heat is off at the Middle East. Everything seems very, very peaceful. And you wonder, well, did you speak something prophetically or did you know something that it was about to completely change? But- well, he said, he said that the uh, Iranians he met with promised that it, that it wouldn't be used. like. <laughs> Right. <laughs> that, but sorry, that they promised that it would be peaceful, that they wouldn't be doing anything. Right. It would be used for humanitarian purposes. Oh, and, I see. Sorry. Um, but they might well, consider that humanitarian. The whole thing, the, the brain level is just, I mean, well, the, get those the guys brain level some brain cells. Is, is, absolutely. 
and it is beyond it. And again, it's when we're discussing history, say with Iran, you've got to go back and go, right, um, I think the, there is, you know, a coup in Iran. You then you then bring in you then bring in the Shah. Um, you you create this coup because you're not very happy with the or the Shell Dutch oil company. I think at that time, maybe around about 1954, if I got the time right, were not very happy because because the Iranians wanted the oil for themselves. Bloody blah, blah. So we throw the we we throw the Shah in. But the important thing to remember is how um, Iran was at that time, the fact that women women could be seen around swimming pools and all this in bikinis and all the rest. It looked very, very California. We've got to remember this time, but also throw in the fact that suddenly uh, you then get rid of the Shah in 1979, and then you bring in... Ayatollah Khomeini, which you then fly from Paris and then and then allow him back into the country. I'm not being clever in saying this. What I'm saying is, is the geopolitical moves that are going on all the time that people have got to be aware of, and also with you know Zablinsky's uh, movements at that at that time. So sorry. With what's going on now, when you are talking about Please excuse the stupid question. When you are talking about human trafficking, what age groups are we talking about? We're talking about young children. Are we talking about teenagers being being trafficked without maybe you go into the details that you want to go into? What are they being where are they being trafficked and and for what particular reason other than sadly the obvious? What what is going on there? Where specifically? What's <laughs> going on everywhere? Well, it's going on everywhere. But the work that you were involved with, when you say the you're talking about Israeli links, then the these human these roots. What what was going on? What is going on? Why are they actually then? Why are they then being uh, being being trafficked? What what for? Well, for prostitution, mostly right. in in right. Israel, um, <clears throat> and we, uh, I was actually working with Netan Sharansky um, on uh, uncovering the the uh, extent of human trafficking in uh, Jerusalem, hmm. and it was surprising that the Orthodox Jews were were uh, surprisingly. Um, most of the brothels were being used by them. Now, this is just my experience. You know, I, I'm. We were one little group working with other little groups within Israel. So, what we were doing was tracing Russian women who were being trafficked. Right. Uh, mostly, these are kids coming out of orphanages or all kinds of awful, schemes. Awful. Uh, very young um, girls from ten to fifteen being trafficked into Cairo. Hmm. And and this they they probably were trafficked every way that you could possibly go, but we were following groups going through Cairo, and then they would be walked across. They would be part of caravans going across the desert, and uh, these were the Torah people who who've been trafficking people since the beginning of time, and uh, 
they used to traffic them with camels. Now they're in vehicles and cars and sat phones and satellite navigation. It's all very sophisticated, but they they have to cross the undetected across the uh, border to Israel. And then once they're brought into Israel, they're trafficked into brothels. Um, and then at that point, we had tremendous cooperation from the Israeli police in rescuing them. So we were pretty good at, at being able to pick them up, close down the brothels, which would then open again almost immediately. And, and the connection was always Russian-Ukrainian organized crime that was doing this in conjunction with um, their probably their relatives, friends, connections. I mean, these, these trade routes are are uh, familial. So um, that's that's how I wound up going into Israel multiple times and, and um, bringing I mean, back it's shocking. It, it, girls. Sorry, it's shocking to hear, but on the one hand, why should I surprise, be surprised just because it comes under a faith group turning around, you know, as you said, orthodox um, Jewish leaders, orthodox practices of that, and then they're going into the brothels. In many ways, why I should be surprised if we could say that about Catholic Catholic priest abuse of uh, of children and and within, say, the Angla, Anglican church over here as well um, and around the world. It's not about... Of course, it's about thinking these people are in authority. They're talking about a particular faith that they're supposed to be living through, and then they're actually they're actually behaving like behaving like this. Um, I shouldn't be, I shouldn't be surprised. Yeah, it's hard to, given everything I've seen and everything that's I've seen happening, and and uh, how difficult it is to make any kind of inroads on proving anything. I don't know why I still have faith in humanity, <laughs> I, I, but I do. I, I, I think that the inherent strength of the human being and the human soul and the human spirit and our connection to God—that's that's why, as you said, we're fighting um, battles of of uh, principalities. You know, these are these are heavenly wars that are going on. We're we're just—it's beyond my comprehension, and and. Um, what I, I have I, is I, some I, experience, some common sense. I'm, mm. I'm eager to share my experience and to help. And but I, well, I, your 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 experience is incredible. Your experience cannot cannot be denied because that is what God that is what God has used you for in these various situations. When uh, you know, for me to sit here and someone to say when I was in MK Ultra. You know, and what you went through, and then when you got out, this is your unbelievably incredible experience. People cannot, they cannot deny that. I, I found myself saying of late, if we look at um, a friend of mine, uh, Kevin Ship, said to me that when Eisenhower made his speech about the military-industrial complex, he missed out one word: the military-industrial congressional complex. Mm. And then we think now of people, I'll call him out, you know, in the past, all right, John McCain, but when John McCain was, when he was alive, you know, Lindsey Graham is his good mate and all this and flying over to the Ukraine saying you're going to fight the Russians and do this. And then you, we just wonder about who's making, who's making money out of, out of all this. 
and it's it's shocking. People are abs- People are waking up to this. And I've said that the European theatre war is the globalist playground. And of course, that ends up going back to Washington, D.C. Am I blaming the American people? Like what you said, no, I'm not. We are looking at the political powers above, the principalities and powers that are using all of that. And this is what is playing out. And this is what people are beginning to call out. I'm thankful that American people are waking up, maybe not as much as I as I'm urging people to do, but they are they are waking up. But this yeah. but this how do you see how do you see Ukraine now playing out, Julia? How do you see this playing out? Do you think there is now going to be negotiations soon to end this or what are your thoughts? What are your thoughts? Well, Kirill Udanov, who is the head of the Ukrainian Secret Service, who runs terror cells, Ukrainian terror cells all over the world, including in the UK and in the US, and they have a list called Mirodvorets. They have assassins in multiple countries, and they have a list. I'm on the list. Um, I think anybody that's spoken out against uh, the war, the Ukraine war is on the list or saying anything positive about Russia is on the list. Anyway, the, the head of that whole operation is Kirillo Budanov. And he said yesterday that Ukraine has lost the war and that they've got to start start looking at how they get out of this. And, and uh, <clears throat> I think... Uh, I think that Russia will stop at the Dnieper River. I think they'll they'll draw a line and say, okay, this is what this is we will reconstruct the East. We'll rebuild everything. In fact, they have been rebuilding. They've they've been rebuilding infrastructure and and laying roads and trains and high-speed rail. And so they've already incorporated the four regions, um, Donetsk, Luhansk, Zaporozhye, and Kherson as well as Crimea, into Russian Federation. So they're already building train stations, airports, all this. But they they will rebuild the East. They don't want the West. Um, I, I wouldn't want the West. The Western Ukraine is, is, uh, is going to be problematic forever. It's always been problematic. I think uh, Poland is looking at, at uh, uh, they're making noise about um, going into Ukraine and, and claiming that land because it's you know it's incredible land it's just gorgeous place it's a beautiful beautiful place um but they're wondering do they really want to try and and rule these these uh people these Hazarian people who have been the bolsheviks the terrorists the, i mean they've just been i mean they they in russia in pre-soviet times they were compressed they could only live in what was called the pale of settlement because uh, they had to be contained. And so I think that's going to happen again. I think they're going to be compressed into a corridor of of land and, and you know, to be the equivalent of the pale of settlement, you know, beyond the pale, that, that expression comes from the pale of settlement. Wow. I think that, I wow. think that yeah, that the pale was a, a borderland between Russia and Poland and uh, uh, Germany and it was uh, the only place that the Hazarians could live. They weren't allowed to 
own land or be in government or or uh, they they were contained. And so when America opened up immigration to um, Eastern Europeans, which they were looked at as, uh, Russia was thrilled to see that whole area just empty into New York, you know. <laughs> but so like right now, it's emptying into Israel. So they're getting hundreds of thousands of these people. What what do you do? I, I don't know. But I think I think the next step will be that Russia will stop and begin in, begin negotiating. Ukraine is not going to get anything back. Maybe Odessa, because they desperately need that port. But um, the rest of it, it's gone. It's gone back to Russia. It's going to stay there. And NATO is going to have to back out of Ukraine. Ukraine's going to have to go neutral in order to stop Russia. Because Russia right now is advancing 12 kilometers a day into Ukraine. It's taken over Abdiyeka. It's taken back Bakhmut. It's taken back. Uh, it's to get to Odessa that it would have to go up through Kharkiv and down, but it's in a position to do that. So um, they could take Kiev. They don't you want to. You you cannot see a situation where the American will then put American troops on the ground in the Ukraine, which is desperately what Zelensky and the other lunatics want. What are your thoughts on that? Well, I believe that when President Trump left office, that the United States went into a condition called devolution. Yes. And that continues because it was it was a demonstrable uh, corrupt election followed by an insurrection. Yeah. And that that put the military in control and kept Donald Trump as commander in chief of the military services. Because you know darn well that if the Biden administration had the power, we'd be over there fighting in Ukraine. We would have been over there a year ago. But he doesn't because he's not in control of the U.S. military. And as long as Donald Trump's in control, we're not putting U.S. troops into foreign wars. Now, there are mercenary groups. They've been there. There are NATO um, combatants. They, they, they've been... Uh, at, Oh, what do you call them? NATO brigades. Uh, so Americans have been in Ukraine as have British soldiers, and they've died there. And it's interesting, the Russians post all the passports. You know, if you look at the Ministry of uh, Defense website, you can see the hundreds of names of and passports, pictures of uh, foreign soldiers that have died in Ukraine, but you never hear about it in the U.S., I must go. Um, I must go. I must go on that website. Oh yes, uh, yes. And uh, and uh, and and have a look and have a look at that. And that's very what what you've just said is uh, is very very is very very interesting because the Americans are then denied that they've got boots on the ground in Syria, but they do have boots on the ground in Syria. Yeah, and again, it's as complicated. Uh, relationships because you have contractors and you have who who knows I don't know I don't understand the machinations of the military but I'm positive that if um, Biden had really had control of our armed services we'd be in Ukraine and we're not and we're not going to be um, that had to play out through NATO and what happens to NATO now I have no idea you know and you've got all this this uh, all these um, uh, freedom movements in the Sahel region of Africa, 
you know, the whole central rare earth, richest part of Africa is is rebelling and driving out the French. So right. Right. And, and everyone else except Russia and China. The Wagners are down there. Mm. So what's really going on down there? I don't know, but I'm sure it I'm sure it impacts everything. The problem is NATO, uh, and this is important because this reflects on your invasion on your southern border via Texas, and we look at what's been happening to us. We have all these dinghies coming over the channel to Dover, etc. Thousands, uh, it seems, every week. And now we have, I'll just say it, we have, seem to have this private private army, I think, of uh, of young men if they were fleeing a uh, war zone, where are their wives? Where are their children? They're not with them. So there, we seem to have these potentially military-age fighting men that are in hotels, et cetera, et cetera, in, the, in this country. So whatever, and I'm not sitting here apologizing for Gaddafi, but as Gaddafi warned and said, if you get rid of me, uh, then you will have mass immigration going on across the Mediterranean into into Europe. So we just have to look at what recently happened in uh, Lampedusa, Lampedusa, which is the Italian island off, off the uh, east coast of Africa, Morocco, Tunisia way. Um, we're, we're facing, we are facing this big time where NATO thinks that it, People think it's perfectly acceptable to go around bombing and then regime change and all the rest. Why Why do they so want to get rid of Putin, in your opinion? Why, why do they so want, again, does it come back to this, I don't know, greater whatever? Why are they so obsessed with getting rid of him? Well, they tried to do a color revolution in Russia, you know, it took three times to get it to take in Ukraine, but it did. They did it in Georgia. They did it in uh, uh, Poland. They did it all over the place. It, so they they put in a CIA controlled, or I'm assuming CIA. I, I I'm not an expert on mm. who's actually mm. controlling these people, but uh, and they're closely related to Soros. Although mm. I can tell you that the Soros you see on television is not the real George Soros. I knew him. Um, I knew him in the 1990s, and and uh, I, I don't know who that is, <laughs> but anyway, like it, I suppose it doesn't matter because it's it's whoever controls the open society funds, and and they aren't his. That's not his money. He told me how he got his money, and he got his money through USAID, and he thought that he got was his great. money via. How did he get his money? Sorry, from governments. Right. So he he was sort of like a, a he's supposed to be this hedge fund genius. Well, he was a he was a corporate raider, and he made billions destroying the economies of England and then of Russia. But he was not a philanthropist, and and uh, he was basically paid millions and millions of dollars through uh, various governments. And he mentioned personally, he mentioned that he got funding through USAID through his his Open Society Institute Foundation. So it wasn't his money, but he was he was nominally designing everything. But um, so there's a lot of, there's a, a whole lot of fraud in this narrative, you know. Mm. These people aren't real people and these, these uh, they're not doing what they say they're doing. And 
I, I, it's very important. And, and it's like, I keep putting this out there, but it never gets any traction, which makes me think that it's really critically important. And that is that there's, there's a division of the United Nations called the International Organization of Migration, IOM. Has a website, posts all of its, all of its data, brags that in uh, 2021, they assisted 270 million migrants uh, into uh, to move out of their countries and into other countries. That included their transportation, their food, phones, benefits, housing. So IOM did this, and it's a multi-billion dollar UN agency that's doing this to England. But you never hear anyone from your government mention it or talk about it, so obviously they're buying them off. Um, but look it up. Look up International Organization of Migration. There it is. It's right in plain sight. And until we shut that down, this is going to continue. We we signed, um, I'm trying to think, uh, we signed what's called the Migration Compact. And I have got to try and find this uh, correspondent, but I then wrote to my local member of parliament saying, why are we signing this? And then I got back a letter via the department saying, oh, this won't affect us at all. Well, it was signed under uh, Theresa May, or I call her Treasonous May. And that, you're absolutely right. I mean, 270 million people, they are moving around the world. And of course, In one year. I, have my, I have my opinion on why. Go on, sorry, sorry. Julia, that was the data from from 2021 from one year right. you know you know right. it's more right but if but you, they're doing it yeah because if you want to make if you want to create a one world government system if you want to create that then you've got to destroy nations you've got to destroy nationhood so it means that by bringing loads of people in they do not have any affinity with the history of that particular nation and of course as you will be more than aware of through the World Bank and through brilliant books like John Perkins of The Economic Hitman oh, yes. and how you're using money, et cetera, et cetera, to break things down, break borders down, break the control down, you are then inching towards a one-world a one world government situation, which I have to say our previous Prime Minister Tony Blair and Gordon Brown have called for with all this uh, pandemic and plandemic of stupidity. But save, just wargaming this out, if people got their way and Putin was then pushed aside, what? how would Russia react? What would what would happen in, in Russia? We remember, and I would like to ask you about Gorbachev at some point in this conversation and Yeltsin. If Putin was pushed aside, what would then happen within Russia? Well, right now he has 89% support. They just had an election. He won by overwhelming numbers. He is, he is absolutely beloved. If anyone from the, from the West did anything to him, you'd have the whole country ready to go to war with Europe. Yes. And, and Medvedev, who was prime minister for four years, uh, 
and is now the the uh, representative, Russian representative, or Putin's representative on the Russian National Security Council, is is saying that if Britain doesn't back off, if 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 British troops come anywhere near Ukraine or or uh, approach Russia, they can wipe out six British cities in six minutes with their hypersonic missiles, which cannot even be detected. And people aren't taking it seriously. This is serious. He well, means I it. Couldn't, I, I couldn't agree more. And I, so, on a personal level, so I'm if, a fool. Say, yeah. say Britain did something that resulted in harm to Putin, hmm. which uh, the UK would be bombed off the map yeah. in six yeah. minutes. Because yeah. the Russian people are so angry at this point. Takes a, that's the Russian bear. It took 20 years to get them riled up. Well, now they're riled up. They're all pointed in the direction together. And if it, it, they're a hair trigger right now. So I think uh, if <laughs> it's dangerous, it's, it's, Incredibly, incredibly dangerous. Well, I, they, are, I can... they now have an army. They have had right. so many people sign up, go through training, uh, and they have all the industrial capacity. They now have the biggest, best armed, well-trained army in the world. They're going to have an army of one point, a standing army of 1.2 million, fully trained, fully armed, madder than hell, Russians, ready to go all the way through Europe. If they cross the Dnieper and keep going, they can go right through Poland, right through Germany, and I think they would bomb the UK. I, I, it's it's beyond dangerous. It's 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 almost too frightening to look at. But well, I I couldn't agree I couldn't agree with you more, and I'm appalled at my government's uh, behaviour. And suddenly, you know, we've gone through uh, Boris Johnson, Liz Truss. Uh, then into Rishi Sunak and Sunak, you know, he just laughs at it. Hospital and in, in, in helicopters with Zelensky. This is crazy. Zelensky coming over here, addressing uh, addressing uh, Parliament, going over to uh, the US in the past, addressing uh, addressing Congress. Just as a quick aside, when you talked about Canada and that uh, that ex Waffen SS officer at the age of 98 or whatever they had in there. I have discovered recently through uh, a historian talking about this in a, in a documentary that the UK took in 8,000 at the end of the Second World War, 8,000 members of basically the Waffen SS, and that there are two tributes, I won't say where they are, but there are two tributes to this, either in a, a particular cathedral or a plaque somewhere else in a restored chapel. So these people came over to this country, and of course we're we're very we know about Operation Paperclip and all the scientists being taken into America, and Vernon von Braun being the head of rocketry of Hitler, then starts running uh, NASA. We're very aware of that. And I, going back to 1991, didn't NATO or didn't you know? Then Bush, didn't we then promise not to expand? The Russians said, as long as you do not expand NATO, what what do you I mean, look at all the promises that we're broken, Juliet. Absolutely. He, the promise was 
they would not expand NATO, and Ukraine would always be neutral. Right. And on the basis of that agreement, the Russians believed it, and they decommissioned their nuclear weapons. And they then cut way back in the army, which is why uh, I think Boris Johnson thought it was such a funny joke that the Russians were unprepared. You know, they, they couldn't bring an army into Ukraine because they had decommissioned. And Ukraine had the army, but it, it uh, was being run by uh, NATO strategists who turned out to be very poor, whereas the Russians had brilliant strategists. I mean, the way they the way they've built up their army, the way they've equipped everything, the way that they have slowly, patiently, it's it's a meat grinder. You know, they just slowly moved forward there in no hurry. You know, especially now that the weather's going bad and the whole Ukraine turns into a sea of mud. I mean, unbelievable. You you can't cross a field in Ukraine in the fall. So they're in no hurry, no rush. Patient, slow, but they are madder than hell. And the Russian population. Well, I, I, I can, I have sympathy. I can understand that. I mean, if you look, I mean, at the moment, to say in this country, I mean, I can't give you the exact figures, but it's thousands. Um, we do not have, I don't think, a standing army, as no. might be like we used to years ago. I don't know if we could reach whether we've got 70,000 in our armed forces, whether that's a combination. Uh, and then we've got this bunch of people that have come over illegally into this country that are all in our hotels up and down this country. And uh, maybe they are reaching, you know, kind of figures that are on the, uh, on the same level as a standing army. I'm also very, very concerned about that. And anyone who then is, says, that they do not have an allegiance historically to to this country. This is where we're in. We're not the only we're not the only country that is absolutely facing this. So if you then blow up, you blow up North Stream two, as um, as Hirsch wrote a brilliant article exposing all of that. You have then bombed infrastructure of one of your allies. Please tell me if I am wrong. You've then bombed that. So all this gas going into Germany. And because of this obsession with green politics and the whole, you know, we must go solar panels and wind and all that and get rid of our nuclear plants, Germany then industrially is deindustrializing before our eyes. Yes, the German defense minister said that they had less than two weeks of ammunition. I, I mean, she, she was replying to Medvedev saying that, you know, they could roll through Germany in two weeks. And she said, well, we couldn't fight them for two weeks. So we've got to fight to the last Ukrainian. And then laughs about it. What are all these people on cocaine or something? That might be. I mean, it's almost like they're all mentally ill. I. I I just, I don't under, I, makes no sense. I mean, they're not taking it seriously. They think they're living in a comic book, and I bet they're snorting coke. I, Zelensky I, I, is. I couldn't agree more. And it's a bit like any war that's going on, like for argument's sake, in the Yemen as well, is that very often we think it's so far away, it's not affecting us. And I think, as you have said, this paradigm shift, 
these things are now really, really, really coming home to roost. Um, the you're absolutely right. When we've got a situation where um, actors, I'm just trying to think of the left wing lunatic's name, is going on about why can't we, you know, do a tactic, use our tactical nukes and strike, strike on Russia. Um, Sean, Sean, whatever his name is, came out. Oh, of that Hannity. One. Sorry, Hannity. No, I'm just trying to think of uh, the particular actor. Come to me in a minute. Is one sandwich short of a picnic, as we say? Anyone who's turning around and saying we need to start using tactical mu tactical missiles at this point is beyond bonkers. Is beyond it. You know, we take out this city. You're you're absolutely right. I feel that our our leaders, my leaders here, are putting our country at risk. And sorry, I don't want to take up all the verbiage time. What I'm saying is, is that we it's as though I've never known a war where people are not sitting down from day one trying to have a discussion and stop this. I've never known anything like it in my lifetime. And there is no there is no reason to do that. And you're absolutely right. We poked the Russian bear so much, so much. Um, slightly changing it because you've also lived through it. What were your views of Gorbachev at, at the end? This whole perestroika and all the rest. What are your thoughts? Well, he was a Hazarian Jew. His name was ah. Ah. was uh, Orbach. Gorbachev is his Russian name. They all took other names. Uh, his name was Orbach, and uh, he was. 100% a globalist and had some kind of ties to Kissinger. So um, that's how he got his multi-billion dollar Gorbachev Foundation and... and uh, uh, so did he trick... I didn't, I didn't did know Did he trick personally. the West? Did he trick the West? No, I think he he believed at the, at the time that, that the Soviet Union was breaking up he believed very optimistically in, uh, it was sort of, I mean, we've really blown it. From the Russian perspective, the Soviet perspective, they loved everything from the West so much. They wanted, they didn't want a Congress, they wanted to be us. And 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 what an opportunity. That's why I went there. I, I was just like, what an opportunity. I mean, this is the opening up and Gorbachev did that, the opening and the, uh, I funded a lot of, of, uh, excellent exchanges and interchanges. And unfortunately what came were a lot of carpetbaggers and, and opportunists. Uh, we could have fought that didn't have to happen that way, but it did. I don't blame Gorbachev for that, but he was, he was part of the, of the um, Hazarian structure. They all were, up until Yeltsin, up until and through Yeltsin. And the big change in Russia, the Russian Federation occurred when they elected a Russian president. Putin's a Russian, a Russian Orthodox Christian, devout Christian president. And uh, that just infuriated the, the globalists who have been trying to replace him all along. I mean, he, they've had, uh, I've known a lot of, because I 
was at the embassy a lot. I met their mm. their their candidates for um, the color revolution people that were going to replace Putin. And it what was kind, a, of, a... kind of funny because they all went shopping in Georgetown in Washington, D.C., and, right. and some little person from the State Department took them all to the same store. They all got the same shoes. So you could tell who the, the pick was by whoever in, in any kind of Russian state party who was wearing Cole Hahn loafers. <laughs> That's hilarious. That's hilarious. What about what about this whole when we throw at Putin the fact that he's ex KGB and all this? What are your what are your thoughts on that? Anybody who spoke English or German, which he's fluent in German and does speak English, um, anybody that had any understanding or had been abroad was in the KGB. So I don't think that's surprising at all. Um, otherwise, you had insular people who didn't speak any foreign languages because it was forbidden, unless you came through the KGB academies. Um, and uh, they really weren't weren't prepared for any kind of interchange. Putin spent a lot of time in Germany. He loved Europe. He loved Germany. Um, he he wanted to take Russia into the West. He considered the West to be Christian, Western Europe to be Christian, England to be Christian. He he wanted the alliance. Uh, they did a. There's been a lot of maneuvering within the Russian Orthodox Church, which is also very political. Oh, and the other thing is um, Zelensky just arrested the head of the Pachevsk Monastery in Kiev. Now, Pachevsk Monastery is, is the monastery, was the very first monastery in Russia, the very first church in Russia. And it's in Kiev. It's beautiful. It's got the uh, tombs of all the Rurik kings and caves underneath it. It's mm. just spectacular. Mm. But it is the heart of Russian orthodoxy in the world, right there. And he arrested and imprisoned the um, metropolitan of, of uh, the Pachevs Monastery. A terrible thing to do, absolutely terrible, and banned the monks from... from uh, any kind of religious service at the Pachevs Monastery. So not only is he taking the uh, their symbol, which is the white dove, mm. the, the, uh, the, the Holy Spirit descending yeah. from heaven onto Christ yeah. as a white yeah. dove, taking that over and turning it into a demonic symbol, but they have just closed down the, the holiest monastery in the world. Sort of like when uh, the Israelis who I guarantee you are Ukrainian Israelis, went into Al-Aqsa Mosque and started defacing everything in Jerusalem, which infuriated the, the Arab populations all over the world. So the same thing was done by Zelensky and the, uh, the um, descendants of the Waffen SS, who are the Banderites, went in and, and uh, defiled the Chef's monastery, which was a terrible thing to do. We're, um, I think we're in the last, um, we're in the sort of last 14 minutes of our incredible discussion, which I'm very grateful for. Can you, in your own, you brought up, we brought up the, the, the Khazarian Jews. 
in in a number of minutes, and you must probably need an hour, which we haven't got. Can you? And I do apologise for not asking this earlier. Can you give a a brief history of that, of the 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 roots of that, the roots of this mafiosa thinking? Sure. Uh, actually, my family were the uh, Ruricks. The Ruricks were the the rulers of uh, Russia, who came from. Norway, they, the Varangian Norwegians, and they came and settled the uh, Novgorod and down the Volga River. So when you see the Viking ships um, coming down the Volga River in Russian oh, history, right. it's the Varangians. And, right. and then they settled in um, Kiev and they built, started civilization basically in Russia. And um, at that time, uh, St. Olga of Kiev I won't go into her whole story, but she's my 32nd great-grandmother. And uh, they were surrounded by these uh, pagan tribes who practiced witchcraft and all kinds of barbary were considered uh, unmanageable. And and uh, they needed, they felt that uh, this was the church in Constantinople, the Orthodox church in, in uh, Constantinople, the Byzantine church, uh, thought that these people needed to be Christianized. Um, the Muslims, who were also uh, very the Ottoman Empire, wanted them to become Muslims because, you know, there was 500,000 of these people. There were 50,000 Edomite Jews who were there. And, and then there were 500,000, this, this wild Turkic tribe. And uh, so the Ruriks, the Russians, were pushing them to become Orthodox, and the Ottomans were pushing them to become Muslims, and they decided that they would become Jews. And uh, so they became Jews and uh, and declared war against the, the Christians, and there was a great deal of fighting, and eventually the Christians defeated the Khazarian Jews and burnt their, their capital. And... Uh, gradually pushed them into what became the, the pale of settlement. But now that now it's Western Ukraine. So um, that's, that's what that is. So it's a, they're Turkic people. Mm. They're, they're not Semitic people. They, um, I, I, I know a lot of them that are just lovely. I mean, I'm, I'm not, I'm not saying it, anything is, is not a value judgment. Um, I've worked with a lot of wonderful Ukrainian Jews. They they have some great projects going on to, to help rebuild the Ukraine. And I don't know what they're going to do. All of them have left and gone to Israel. So um, that's the situation. And that, that conflict, that, that tension between the Muslims from the Ottoman Empire, the Christians, who then went on to uh, Christianize all of Russia. So uh, it was a sweep across Russia, and Russia became a Christian nation due to the Ruriks. And then there were the Hazarians who were uh, um, smart, aggressive, um, talented, always in conflict. So, so uh, it's a situation that goes back to 800 AD. And, and uh, no American's going to go in there and solve it. No, because what you've said, it's about where it's adopted a faith, and there is not 
the traditional Semitic line. That no. that is what is is that that's fair. Is that what you're saying? That's fair enough. What you're saying? Yes, it's not. It, it, and and because of the Balfour Declaration, uh, a, an awful lot of the the Jews actually, when Perestroika started, a lot of the Jews left um, Russia and Ukraine and went to Israel. Yes, and that was the beginning of the of the um, like the invasion of the left bank or the incursions on the left bank because they needed land. The settlers would just take it. That's where the settlers came from. Or the Golan Heights, you know, they they would go to war zones and take land because uh, they didn't have much to go back to. And uh, moving forward, they were willing to take the risks. So, uh, and they were brutal about it. There's no question about that. So, um it's a mess. It's a mess. And I really feel for, for the people in Israel, all of them. <laughs> I think, I think in all honesty, we, you know, we don't want to see any, anyone, uh, killing, being, being murdered whatsoever. But the problem oh. is if you've got a people group that says we want to push you into the sea to the Mediterranean, this is again from uh, a mass point of view, turning around saying we want to wipe you out as mass genocide. Then uh, this is not this is not good. Yeah, I mean, two people ready to genocide each other. Yeah, and then you have the foreign players who are looking at this fortune in gas. You know, oh boy, lots of money if 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 they kill each other. So it's it's sort of like the Maidan where you had the the civilians and you had the police and you had to convince you had to kill both of them with snipers to get them fighting with each other so that they both got out of the way they had to get rid of the police and they had to get rid of those pesky civilians and and uh they're doing the same thing in israel and, just, and i think i'm sorry just slightly different segue into completely uh, different in the last few minutes because when we met, you raised this with me. On January the 6th, 2021, um, are we alluding to the fact that there were snipers on the roof again? I think there were. Uh, a lot of people suggested that, that they heard people speaking other languages. Some people recognized Ukrainian. Uh, on some of the views, it's clear that some of the Ukrainians who were at Maidan and were very often filmed and actually gave interviews were also in Washington, D.C. At, at the barricade. And uh, every time the January 6th films, we get to see a little bit more, you get to see more. So who are these people? So I, I don't have proof. Uh, nobody does till these films get released. But uh, yes, I mean, if you really wanted to take that crowd and turn it into a total psychotic mess you would shoot protesters and you would shoot police and they did i mean to a certain extent they did that they shot police killed some innocent people and some police were hurt so um but it wasn't it 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 could be contained um but if you had the the you know well just for the record four four patrick five people died that day uh, four Patriots were killed. Uh, Ashley Babbitt, 
Roseanne Boyland, uh, Benjamin Phillips, Kevin Greer. I think Kevin Greeson, I think I pray got a pray I got all those names right. And then dear officer Signic died sadly because he was neglected by fellow. Yeah, they left they left him to die instead of getting yeah. him medical care. Absolutely. Absolutely. He could have lived. And absolutely. And as a dear friend of mine, David Summerall, has been on this channel a number of times talking about that. And just to say to the audience, there's a new documentary coming out at any second, if not out there already, which is looking at the timeline of this. Um, and uh, that I was, and of course there's been, hasn't there been a Ukrainian film crew? That's another discussion that were there on the day. I think uh, Lara Luma re uh, revealed that. Lara Logan, I think, had been talking about that as well. Yes, and Lara Logan. That's why in an amazing discussion I had with you over a dinner and a privilege to do so was the fact that you brought that up and that really made me, that pulled me right up, thinking, man, oh, man, these people are that evil I mean, the fact that Pelosi turned down the National Guard is yet another discussion because it was deliberate, deliberate to create this chaos. And as and, as, and uh, she had a film crew, she had her daughter's film crew. That's right. That's right. That's right. So it's were... not. It it it's not about. Uh, I'm not sort of changing the subject for segueing into something else for the sake of it. I think in this discussion, trying to help people understand the historical links that are going on, the maneuvering that's going on, but the fact that there is such evil and we are fighting principalities and powers, well, uh, yeah, and we need to be praying about this because as you quite rightly said, this heavenly battle that is going on and then it manifests in the second heaven and manifesting down here on on earth. Because as someone said, we are dealing with that, with doctrines of demons. We are dealing with, you know, out of nowhere, out of nowhere, these these things, these things happen. Um, Juliet, we're just coming into the last three or four minutes. You wrote a book. Could you could you tell me just quickly about that book and where people can find that book? You have the graphic? I sent you the graphic. Uh, well, uh, yes, here. Thumper's not in the chair, but sorry. Describe describe the book. Well, I read a book called Sparky, Surviving yeah. Sex Magic, which is about my life as He's an here. MK. He's here. <laughs> Thumper, an could you, I wonder if you could find uh, the graphic of uh, Juliet's book, Sparky. It's, it's, it's three books. I Free think books. that's the name of the file. Three books. Three books. But it's 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 about my life in MK Ultra. Right. Okay. What what's the uh, uh, link to it? Is yeah, it on? Uh, it's a JPEG, and it's it's. Uh, oh, did you send it to me? I thought I had done, and I do apologize. Can let me, we let me find it? Can we find it anywhere, Juliet? I don't know how to do that because I'm on my computer doing. Right, okay, okay. I'm just gonna find you. Uh, I do apologize. But I'll keep um, talking. I, I. Uh, so Sparky is about my life in in yeah. MK Ultra, which is also tied to all of this because that's a product. MK stands for Mein Kampf, and and it is a Nazi program, and it it came right out with the. Uh, 
the um, importing of Nazis from um, Germany that went to the UK, US, Russia, many mm. countries. And they, you know, they worked in a number of programs, and one of them was was uh, mind control of of uh, the children. My second book is Angels Over Moscow, which is about my work of on human trafficking in my life in Russia. And my third book, which is coming out in December, is called Moscow Traffic, which is a novel, but it's really the history of contemporary Russia. And if you read that, you will understand a great deal about what's happening right now and what's happening with with human trafficking. So, um, when you uh, I just forwarded it to you, uh, Thumper. I do apologize to you, Juliet, for not doing that. I just when found it on Amazon. I got it. Okay, brilliant. Throw them up. Throw them up. Throw them up. Right. Juliet, that's your second book, yes? Yes, that's Angels Over Moscow. Right. And there's Sparky. You can see Sparky and there. And there's Sparky there as well. Right. So when is your third when's your third one coming out next year? No, it's coming out in December. Coming out in December. Brilliant. Yeah. yeah. Well we need to uh we need to make sure we push that. Juliet, can I um can I just thank you so much for joining me tonight um well it's tonight my time you're five it's or six tonight we're getting time. there Evening. we're getting there you're getting I'm old there. it's night <laughs> <laughs> but can i just thank you so much for joining me and i in the future i do look forward to talking to you again on a number of different occasions maybe on some other platforms as well because it's really important that we understand uh geopolitically what is what is going on because also it's something that we can pray into and it's something that we need to pray into i'll yes, just leave I, you with the last 30 seconds of thought okay my last 30 seconds any any event that evokes a a reaction of hate and anger in you and it does i mean i saw the things with hamas and it made me so angry and then i started hating and i think Wait a minute. That's a programmed response. That's mm. what you're supposed to feel. Someone is doing that to you. Mm. Stop. Think about it. Look at the at the overall what is what is this doing? Because if you react if you react to the programmed response, you're going to make terrible mistakes. So, um be very suspicious of of anything that plays on your emotions. No, I hear you. Juliet, thank you so much. We're going to have to close out now, but thank you so much. I know two hours on any show when we're having a conversation nonstop. It's it's not easy. It's actually very hard work. Um, but I I I thank you for giving me the pleasure privilege of being my guest tonight and taking us in so many different directions because I think the history of Russia, particularly recently, I want to be able to discuss that more with you. Would that be okay with you? Sure. Read uh, Moscow Traffic when it comes out. You'll learn a lot. I look forward to get. I look forward to reading that. From the lakes of Minnesota to the hills of Tennessee, across the plains of Texas, oh, from sea to shining sea. From Detroit down to Houston, and New York to L.A., where there's pride in every 
we stand in.